The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Aramco F1 Focus, the podcast that aims to get you thinking about Grand Prix racing that little bit differently. If this is your first time joining us, where have you been? But in all seriousness, it's great to have you along for episode three of the pod, where once again, I, Tim Sylvie, am joined by two real racing men. First up, it's a man who's crunched more numbers than I've had hot dinners. It's our in-house stat superstar, Sean Kelly. How are you, Sean? Tim, I am recovering from the ordeal that was getting from Azerbaijan to Miami in a matter of days. You've done well. You've done well. A bit, a, a wee bit weary, fair to say? Yes. Very, very happy that we've got a few days off before we uh, uh, re, uh, reconvene for Imola. Very good. Now, also joining me, it's a man who, if his Twitter feed is anything to go by, has spent most of his time recently out on track putting some beautiful classic race cars through their paces. It's Alex Brundle. How are you, my friend? Very, very good, thank you. Also had a good old look at Baku for uh, for F1 TV and Formula Two, and uh, yeah, have been skidding about a little bit uh, in in our in our break. You have. You've driven some interesting things, haven't you, the last few uh, days and weeks? Yeah, tried to keep it all between the white lines and just about managed. So that's that's always a positive. Um, but it's always good to have a chat, intersperse it with a couple of chats about Formula One and feeder series. Excellent. Well, as usual, Sean and Alex will be bringing you insight in their respective stat and performance focuses. Plus, we'll have the latest instalment of our insights into the world of sustainable fuels in our Aramco focus. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going with focus number one. This week, we're going to kick off with Sean's stat focus. So Sean, fresh off the back of the Miami Grand Prix, what have you got for us? Well, Max Verstappen, uh, the expert of winning Grand Prix lately, won from ninth on the grid on Sunday in Miami, an exceptionally rare event in Grand Prix history, only the fifth time that we've ever had a a winner from that grid position. Now, Sean, I know you love an oddity, so let's dive into that one a bit more. I know you've gone deep with your research on this, so tell tell us a little bit more about the oddity of not winning from ninth. Well, of all the grid positions, the first 18 grid positions uh, on the starting grid, none had gone longer without a winner uh, than ninth for some weird reason. It hadn't produced a winner since 1984, not since Nicky Lauda won at Dijon uh, in his title winning year. And the fun thing is, is that the previous four drivers to have won from that position uh, all had a fascinating story attached. Uh, Maurice Trantignon was the first guy to win from that position, Monaco 1955. And he won using car number 44. That's the only race win taken by a driver with car 44, not taken by Lewis Hamilton. Um, And he subsequently went on to win the 1958 Monaco Grand Prix from fifth. So that makes him the only driver to win the Monaco Grand Prix from outside the top four on the grid twice. He's the only guy, Maurice Trantignon. He's a real expert level answer to a trivia question. The next guy to win from ninth, John Surtees, Monza 1967. Remember that famous race, Jim Clark made a lap on the field uh, and then uh, I think ran out of uh, ran out of fuel in the last lap. And John Surtees and Jack Brabham had a drag race to the line. John Surtees winning for Honda. Honda then didn't win again until 2006 with Jensen Button, and he won from 14th. So apparently, winning from a low grid position is easy if you're in a Honda. Then the third one, Jody Schechter, Canada 1977, the last of three wins for the Wolf, the Wolf team, who won on their debut as a constructor 
in Argentina 1977. Schechter then won the Monaco Grand Prix, uh, but they never won another race. And then we get to Lauda, uh, France 1984 in his championship year, the last of three world titles, that one coming seven years after his previous one. Max now added to that record. He's got this remarkable habit of winning from any old grid position. He's now won from eight grid positions since the start of last year. That's only one short of the career record. Fernando Alonso has won from nine grid positions. And who would rule out Verstappen having another victory from another different grid position at some point down the line this season? How cool would it be if he managed to do it from every position on the grid? And you wouldn't put it past him. Now, Sean, as a fan and as a stat man, was there any doubt in your mind that Max would win that race. I mean, he traveled some distance on those tires to give himself the greatest chance of success, which is obviously something that not all drivers are capable of doing. And by lap 15, he was already up to P2, which is quite remarkable. Was it ever in doubt for you? It was. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was a foregone conclusion. I think there was an inevitability about it later in the stint, later in uh, before Perez had to, to pit. Uh, sorry, before Verstappen had to pit, um, because... It should have been a case that when Perez pitted, he would start to close the gap on Verstappen. Um, and then when Verstappen was able to actually hold that advantage, um, it was a case of, oh, okay, so when Verstappen actually re-emerges here, he's going to be very, very close to Perez, a lot closer than we had imagined. That's when the inevitability came in. Um, but certainly, uh, uh, sort of midway through the race, we, I think I was assuming that Perez had a bigger advantage than he actually ended up having. And we saw in Jeddah and in Baku, there was a, you know, there was a, there were instances in that race where we thought Verstappen would catch Perez, uh, and he never did. So you thought, okay, maybe this is going to happen again. Well, I think Max put out a statement with the way he drove on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Uh... We know that Max did put in a hell of a stint on those tyres. I'm determined to catch you out, Sean, over the course of this uh, podcast series with a, a statistic or a piece of data that you just can't pluck out of your massive brain. So do we know the longest distance ever driven by someone on one set of tyres? Not exactly. Um, it, it's because the rules have changed down the years and obviously things weren't necessarily logged in the early days of, of world championship racing in the way that they are now. Pirelli... Uh, were keen to highlight uh, last week in Baku, uh, Esteban Ocon uh, went the entire race bar the final lap uh, on a single set of tyres, more than 300 kilometres. And that was the longest that that uh, particular compound of tyre had done. Uh, I think it was the C3 tyre, C3 hard tyre, um, since 2015. So, um, you know, in that context, it's been a long time since somebody went that long on a single set of tyres. But... Back in the early days of World Championship racing, races could be up to more than 500 kilometers in length. These days, they're only around about 305 or so. Um, so it was possible to do you know, the Italian Grand Prix or the French Grand Prix on a single set of tires and do more than 500 kilometers in doing so. Um, so, you know, you've got those races. And of course, you know, in theory, it would be possible to have done the Indy 500 on a single set of tires uh, back when it was a World Championship race between 1950 and in 1960. Having driven a, a couple of sets of historic tyres now and then, I, I often wonder whether that's the way that slick tyres were in fact invented. 
um, in that it it becomes abundantly clear when you drive a treaded historic specification tyre like those that would have been used in, in those 1950s races, you actually go faster and faster and faster and faster because it behaves more like a slick. Do you reckon that could have been the, the how we ended up with the slick tyres that we use today, Sean? Well, I once heard a story, which I don't know if this is true or if this is an embellishment, that uh, Alfa Romeo once sent... Um, or maybe it's Ferrari, uh, sent a, a, a set of uncut tires, um, which they were slightly puzzled about, that it had no uh, n- no tread on it. Um, but nevertheless, they bolted them on and sent the driver out at a test and started setting some remarkable lap times. Uh, and they just thought, well, that's weird. We're, you know, we, haven't put, we haven't put a tread on it yet, and yet we're doing these amazing lap times. Um, whether that's true or not, I've never actually established. But it wasn't until 1971 that uh, the slit tyre uh, actually started being used, um, you know, intentionally in Grand Prix racing. It seems amazing that we actually got as far as the early 1970s before they finally decided, wouldn't it be better if we made the contact patch as big as possible um, instead of having this sort of all-weather tyre that we've been using up to this point? Now, Sean, we're going to move on to your next focus, a retrospective look back at winning grid positions. Now, this feels like a big subject. Where do we start? Surely you've got some ridiculous wins from the back of the grid in here. Well, there have been many. I mean, the lowest winning grid position has been 22nd, um, and uh, I'll come to that. Uh, but statistically speaking, in, across all the history of the World Championship, there is a 77% chance that the winner of any race is going to come from the top three on the grid. So clearly, qualifying the top three, you're already, you know, there's a three-quarter chance that, you, you know, that's where the winner is going to come from. Conversely, and, you know, Max Verstappen won from ninth on the grid, there is only a 4% chance that the winner will come from outside the top eight on the grid. So, you know, it's not, statistically speaking, it's, it's no, by no means inevitable, even if you are in a car as good as Max Verstappen has right now, that you will win the race starting from outside the top eight. Now, as recently as 2019, we went an entire season where everybody who won races came from inside the top three. No one won a Grand Prix in 2019 from lower than third. It also happened in 2007, it happened in 1998, and it happened in 1994. That's a more regular occurrence than you might think. Conversely, we had that mad season of 1982, uh, where famously, um, you know, nobody won more than two Grand Prix all season. Eleven drivers won races for seven different constructors. Out of the 16 races that season, only two of them were won from pole position. And one of those, which was Alain Prost in Brazil, only came because uh, the original guys who finished first and second, Nelson Piquet and Keke Rosberg, were both disqualified. So that was kind of an inherited win from pole. And then the other one, René Arnoux won in the French Grand Prix of 82, that was the first time he'd won from pole position in his career after failing to do so in his first 13 attempts from pole position. That was the 14th time he'd started from pole and the first time he'd actually won from pole. So uh, spare a thought for there for Charles Leclerc. That's the record that Charles Leclerc is trying to avoid. He's now on a run of eight consecutive starts from pole position without actually delivering a win. Ooh, ouch. Now, how highly do you rate Max's run from P9 compared to others that you've seen over the years? Do the, do the history books show the true masters of, of coming from behind? Well, I think the, 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 the master of the art, um, statistically speaking, was John Watson, um, because John Watson um, has this remarkable record. He won the Detroit Grand Prix in 82 from 17th on the grid. Now, bear in mind, Detroit in 1982 
uh, very tight street circuit. That year, it also had a, a very, very slow hairpin, just that first year. So it was even harder to overtake uh, because they cut it out the next year and made it a little bit faster, a little bit of a better run. But they had this really tight, sinewy hairpin. John Watson, nonetheless, still won from 17th on the grid on a street track. That was amazing in its own right. He then followed that up in uh, Long Beach the following year by winning from 22nd on the grid. Um, McLaren, apparently very good at having bad qualifying sessions. I mean, they failed to qualify at all at the Monaco Grand Prix in 83. Um, but yeah, John Watson won that race from 22nd on the grid. Nicky Lauda, his teammate, uh, winning from 20, uh, sorry, finishing second from 23rd on the grid. So you had, imagine that these days. Imagine having a 1-2 uh, where the drivers have started that low on the grid. It was remarkable. And speaking of Nicky Lauda, I mentioned the, the previous win that he had, Dijon 84, the last win from ninth on the grid. Um, that year, 1984, Nicky Lauda won the world championship without ever qualifying on the front row. He is the last driver to date to have won the world championship without ever qualifying on the front row in his championship year. So that combination of John Watson and Nicky Lauda, often teammates throughout their F1 career, uh, probably the, the masters of the comeback drive. Now, I'm going to move it on to your final focus for this week, Sean. Um, we're going to talk a little bit, um, yellow flags, red flags, safety cars, etc. After lots and lots of red flags in recent weeks, the race in Miami didn't have any. In fact, all the drivers that started the race finish the race and no safety cars at all, no yellow flags, definitely no red ones. How unusual is this? That's, I, I described it in, in post-race as being the first perfect race in history, um, which I can't, I can't verify because, again, records don't necessarily go back that far with uh, logging how many yellow flags came out. We didn't have light panels back in the 1950s. But it was almost a Formula One race held in laboratory conditions. I'd be interested to know how close the team's race simulations were to what we actually ended up with as terms of a result. Um, yeah, to have all of those things happen in one race, I can't think of another example. We've certainly had races with no yellows. Remarkably, Monaco in 2021 went the entire distance without a single yellow flag. But we did have a retirement. If you remember, Valtteri Bottas came into the pit stop. They tried to take the tyre off and the wheel nut wouldn't move. And it took them five days to remove it. They couldn't remove it until they got back to the factory. Uh, so there was a retirement in that race. We've also had 14 races now where every driver has actually, every driver that has started has finished the race. And 10 of those races have been from 2015 onwards as we've moved into this hybrid era of exceptional reliability. Um, and the drivers really uh, keep their noses clean, metaphorically and literally in terms of the nose of the car. Um, so we've seen, you know, no yellow flags. We've seen no retirements. Um, the only other examples I could probably give, the Dutch Grand Prix of 1961, there were no retirements in that race, but there were also no pit stops in that race. That's the only race we've ever had where there's been no retirements and no pit stops, unless you count Spa 2021, the, the one-lap race that we had behind the safety car. But of course, then there's a safety car, so that doesn't count as a perfect race. Then you could think of Indianapolis 05, well, there might have been a, a brief yellow flag, perhaps, kind of, sort of, when Barrichello ran across the grass very briefly. But there was only six cars on the grid in the race anyway, because 14 had pulled out because of the uh, Michelin tyre situation. Um, so would you deem that as perfect race? Uh, you know, probably not. But 
with it, with it being a clinical race like this, it's quite funny. When I was in Australia, we had uh, you know three red flags and everybody was punting each other off into the hedge at the restart. Everyone asked if the race was too interrupted and too uh, truncated in some way. And now after Miami, I heard people grumbling that the race wasn't exciting enough. Um, so you can never please all of the people all of the time. Well, uh, from a strategic perspective, though, I mean, you, you look at the team's um, uh, simulations and their, and their strategies. I would imagine a full green race is actually a complete disaster on the pit wall. Teams notoriously underfill the cars um, because they're expecting some sort of stoppage or at least to run um, uh, or at least to run a little bit slower at some point. Uh, and I would imagine that actually, well, I know that actually those those that sequence of events where there are literally no incidents in a race at all is seldom ever accounted for in the reality of race planning. It's sort of this unicorn state of nothingness that they that they're all so surprised occurs. They don't really plan for it. It's incredible. It was a good job it didn't happen in a place like Imola or Montreal, which is historically... Or has Monza. Been, yeah, who has been, always been quite marginal uh, on fuel consumption and such like. Um, I don't know how Miami fits into that because it's not a it's not a situation that ever really occurred to us until Sunday. Yeah, and it, it, there, there was obviously a red flag in quali, and and uh, and we had the penalty for for science in the in the pit lane. So there there was not quite the perfect race, but nearly there. Sean, thank you for all of that. Some fascinating thoughts as ever. And remember, if you want to comment on anything Sean, Alex, or myself have to say, drop us a line on social media using hashtag Aramco F1 Focus. Right, moving on, it's now time for us to find the devil in the detail of the on-track action with Alex's performance focus. So, Alex, take it away. What are you going to talk about this time? Well, you know, we've had two uh, street races where uh, most of the audience in Baku felt the race was a little bit boring potentially uh, there are a section of the audience in Miami who felt the race as we've mentioned earlier in the pod wasn't spicy enough so I've got a bit of a tire manifesto for you and what I'm interested to do is explain it fully and then I want to vote out of you as to whether you think whether you'd vote for my manifesto um, uh, for for ongoing sprint uh, ongoing street races in the future Love that. Love that. Well up for a vote. Now, before we get stuck into it, let's start with you. You come from the world of endurance racing, where tyre management is obviously key. For F1, what's the purpose of the hard tyre at at race weekends? Take us through that. Well, we've had two races where half the field have driven more than half the race on the hard tyre. Uh, and I think it serves a very specific purpose for the tyre manufacturer. But p- put yourself in January or February before testing and you're looking forward to a race like Baku. Now, you've got the two tyres you really want to run on, the, the medium and the soft. The, we were right up the, the soft end of the compound range in Baku. But then you have to send a tyre for if it's unseasonably hot. If most of the track resurfacing, which we saw in Baku between 13 and 16, the wrong way round, so everything but 15 pretty much was resurfaced, um, that could have changed the, the, tar- the tarmac surface to be incredibly abrasive, more abrasive than the tarmac. Uh, than the 
tyre supplier expected. So you kind of have to have this backstop tyre to allow the teams to race. We've mentioned it earlier in the pod, Indianapolis 2005. What happens if there is incredible load? We arrive and we get this incredibly embarrassing scenario for the tyre supplier where the tyres aren't up to the job. So we're getting a backstop tyre. What the problem with that is, if we have a full dry weekend, as we have through Miami, as we have through Baku, the circuit creeps more and more and more and more with greater and greater and greater load into the window to make the hard tyre work. So the big old friendly hard tyre ends up taking the drivers and the teams through most of the race. And you get these horrible, boring one-stop races where everyone starts on the medium or the soft, jumps across to the hard. There's this sort of sprinkle of action in the middle. I mean, I know in in Miami we saw multiple stops, but uh, for example, in Baku, you get this sprinkle of action pretty early on and then they're just droning around to the end of the race. So uh, I have... A, uh, a concept that I think the hard tyre, after they've run it on Friday, and after we've run all three compounds through Friday, made sure the soft and the medium work, are not going to fall apart, should be banned for the rest of the weekend, and a multiple stop race should be therefore enforced. Oh, I, I like it. I like where you're going with this, Brundle. I like it. But fr- from a driver's perspective, would the racing be better? Presumably that the racing would be better with less tyre management going on. Is that is that fair to say that that's what the drivers want? Yeah, I, I mean, you, you're not necessarily building in less tyre management. There would still be tyre management, but you'd just see tyre management with shorter stints. What you're building in, though, with a, a greater number of stops and a greater number of strategic options, if you were only taking the medium and the soft through to the end are differentials in pace. And I believe differential in pace is what makes a race exciting. So you've got more more drivers on a different life of tyre out on track for more of the race and more drivers on a different compound of tyre out on track for more of the race. And that's when you start to see the overtakes. Forget Red Bull for a second. They're out front at the moment. But in the midfield, what we want is this slot machine of tyres, of drivers on different tyres with different pace, all making moves on each other, whether or not DRS assisted. And that's what I really think would make the racing better. But are we looking here just from a uh, street circuit perspective or would you put this in across the board? I think in a in a street circuit perspective, it is where you really need it. Because, for example, in Baku, in, in theory, you can make the moves down the front straight. In Miami, we saw what I, what I thought was some great wheel-to-wheel racing. But it, it tends to be the case that at a street circuit, it's harder to get those overtakes. If you look across the season in terms of clean passes made on tracks, uh, and Sean will be able to jump in on this and contradict me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe all of the street circuits trend low uh, in terms of the number of moves completed on track successfully through a race distance. We've got to do something to spice up the action. It's fantastic to see the cars race wheel to wheel on the street circuits. It's fantastic to see the cars dice uh, against the walls but I think also you know 
we get more knowledge and and less uh, and less change to the circuit at a place like Silverstone. The tire manufacturer know what they are getting year on year. There's more of a there's more consistency, and so they can be more aggressive in the three compounds that they choose. Whereas on a street circuit, there's always a question of this hard tire hedge. There's always a question of putting that one compound in for the if all else fails, the race will still run to distance kind of concept. And I think that that is the, is the soft pillow, the soft blanket, the soft edge that we need to take away from the teams. 100%. Now, you've got your manifesto here. You've put your argument across well. So are we putting hard tyres in room 101? I suppose that's, that's the question. I mean, Alex, clearly for you, we're, throwing, we're tearing them up and throwing them in the bin, aren't we? Well, I think we are. I think we are. I mean, what, what clearly for me needs to happen, the tyre the manufacturer will never agree with this, firstly. I think it's something that needs to be enforced because a Pirelli car will always win. Uh, Pirelli will win every Grand Prix. They are the sole tyre manufacturer in Formula One. Their entire job, which is demonstrated at the start of the weekend in the driver's briefing notes uh, and the pre-race briefing notes where Pirelli deliver uh, a a sequence. uh, Remember, they came out about a year ago, a sequence of uh, limitations in terms of the pressure that the, the tires can hold at all stages through the race weekend and camber limitations. So Pirelli have one job, which is to make sure all the cars get to the end of the race without a tire failure of any sort. But we don't have one job as people interested in Formula One. We have lots of jobs. We'd like that, but we'd also like excitement. So for me, the hard tyre after we've run on Friday goes in the bin. How about you guys? Well, it sounds great to me. Um, I mean, I don't have any problem with having a few more pit stops. Um, the only thing is, is that, you know what, you know, us Formula One fans can be terrible whinge bags. And uh, when, when Pirelli actually, when Pirelli actually t- took over from Bridgestone, they were given the brief make these tires degrade, make them not able to do a whole race. Uh, So they did that. And in early season 2011, uh, the Turkish Grand Prix of 2011, which was, I think it was like the fifth round of 2011, there was 81 pit stops in that race. Sebastian Vettel won that race with a four stopper in dry conditions um, as a a standard, you know, it was a prescriptive strategy. uh, so that happened a lot and everyone moaned that there was too many pit stops. We need less pit stops. So Pirelli go away and design a tire. Okay, fine. We'll make a tire that lasts the, you know, the majority of the ratio and you have to make one stop. And then everyone starts whinging. Oh no, now there's not enough pit stops. Why is that? We need more action on track. So I feel like as good as Alex's agenda is, and I, I'm quite enthusiastically, I would vote in favour of it. Uh, I just know that there'd be another section of society that would say, you've ruined this for us now. It's now it's not nothing like the way we wanted it to be such is the such is the nature of tire politics indeed. <laughs> as, as ever indeed exactly and, and i would be one of those whingers moaning that that now there's there's just pit stops left right and center and, and that's how you win your race um so I, I think i'm gonna i'm gonna keep the hard tire out of room 101 so i i, I two, two, two to one here i mean sean's sean's put it in there i think he's pulled the lever alex has certainly pushed it in there with with gusto I, i'm gonna say let's let's keep him there let's keep him there let's win it on the track forget about the pit stops oh, controversial if you want to talk about winning on the track that there are other things that you can do and i think if we are going to keep the hard tyre, we're talking line astern uh, racing on track, then I really do think DRS needs a tweak, Tim. 
Um, and, and, and I'd also like to talk about that in this particular performance focus. Well, let's do that. Let's let's jump into the DRS uh, conversation. So again, Alex, from a, from a driver's perspective, speaking personally from a driver's perspective, but also I suppose generally uh, from your peers, who I, I imagine you speak to about this sort of thing relatively often, do you like DRS? Do you think it aids the show or does it detract from it? I'm always split on DRS. The purest inside me that wants to see a, a V12 glance the exit curb of the parabolica and I don't really care about anything but that, you know, hates DRS. You know, the 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 kind of casino system of push to pass. But the realist within me recognises that races, a Formula One race, I, I mean, Sean will have probably, again, a, a percentage of passes. And again, I know we love to catch him. We love to catch him out on this pod. I feel very bad. Um, a percentage of passes... Um, which are DRS-aided in modern Formula 1 versus those which are not DRS-aided. But for me, even watching the races, it's clear that that's a long way north of 50, probably a long way north of 70 in terms of the amount of passes that occur with the DRS system. Would we get... Would we get the activity on track that we now have without DRS or even close? I just don't think an audience now, having seen the amount of action that we've seen in previous years, would tune into a Formula One race without DRS availability and without DRS assisted action. Yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, we hear from drivers that, that like to moan about DRS, and and like you say, do, you know, does it affect the purity of the sport? We get the DRS trains that that come along. If the drivers had control of the rule book, Alex, what do you think they would do about it? Is it? Do we reduce the zones more? Do we drop it totally? Do we do we use it up to a point where? Um, you can get within touching distance of the car in front, but you can't necessarily use it open to make the move. What, what would they do? You know, what, there's something that's really disappointed me recently, given the fact, you know, this is uh, arguably, and I saw somebody will, will kick up a different one, um, but from our listener base, I think we'll broadly be in agreement, the most technological sport on earth. You've had a new set of regulations cooked up by a small team massaging the airflows. Of, of these cars at 200 miles an hour to reduce things like wheel wake, turbulent air, to allow air to be kicked up over and over the top of a following car so that these cars can follow each other ever more closely, can race ever more aggressively. And then what, uh, and then we make DRS changes to, to reflect well, and, that, and that's what the shortening of the DRS zones are recently. They're, they're supposed to reflect the fact that the cars can follow each other more closely. What was the DRS change at the uh, uh, down the front straight in Baku? Around 100 metres. Now, I'm not saying that around 100 metres is not exactly the difference between, you know, the old regs and the new regs. But... I feel like in Formula One, we could aim to fly a little bit higher than that. You know, we can sit there. It's pretty basic mechanics, isn't it? Speed, distance and time. We've got all of the data available from all of the cars. We can take an average Formula One car through an average DRS zone, put it, let's say, 
three car lengths back and design the length of that DRS zone. So at the differential speed, at the delta speed, as we would call it in, in, in you know engineering terms, those cars arrive side by side in the braking zone and have a battle rather than blast past and and get the move done well before the braking zone. And I just don't understand why we're not taking the data from Friday, seeing how much benefit there is for all teams in the DRS, taking an average and then literally scientifically making sure the racing is good rather than the old lick a finger, stick it in the air, reduce it by 100 metres and send them approach, which seems very un-F1 to me. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Now, the masters of DRS are clearly Red Bull. Let's talk about them for a second. They seem to have optimised DRS to a frankly ridiculous degree. What problem does that present and how on earth are they doing it? Well, it's kind of the counterpoint to the point I just made, actually, because <laughs> uh, as, as, if, as if to argue with myself, the, the counterpoint will always be who benefits more. Right, who benefits the most out of the DR? And if you reduce or 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 extend the DRS zones, obviously different cars have different benefits from from the DRS system. So if you reduce the DRS, then obviously it's going to hurt Red Bull, who, as you say, Tim, uh, quite correctly, are masters of the DRS. I mean, what they do with the rear of that car is 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 truly spectacular. You're you're looking at ditching the maximum amount of downforce, um, downforce and drag. Are inexplicably, uh, are sorry, inextricably linked. Um, the force to push the car down towards the road has to come from somewhere. Law of conservation of energy says if you're generating a force in one direction, you don't have energy to generate force in another direction. So they are uh, absolutely linked. Um, all Red Bull have managed to do is build this incredible house of cards between the the lower floor, the lower beam wing, or the the lower element of the rear wing, and both uh, and both uh, the the top elements of the wing used one single mechanical movement, the the changing of the DRS flap, to absolutely destroy their concept of rear downforce and of course the car takes off at 30 kilometers per hour extra rather than the 15 achieved by the others can we actually take the variance of performance between all of those different cars and genuinely engineer good racing i believe we can but there'll be people who say we can't there'll be people that say you'll get that wrong and you'll actually not spice up line astern uh, street races at all and just generate a situation where Red Bull take off into the distance even more. And obviously DRS isn't the answer to everything. There are other ways to spice up the street circuit racing. Is, is there anything you would do from a driver perspective to help that along? What else can we do to spice things up? I mean, you can talk about what well, we saw off. Uh, we talk, saw the the sprint uh, weekend back in Baku. I mean, I do wonder about a reverse grid concept for the sprint races. Whether that would be interesting, honestly, I really don't think so. I think that the we what you saw in Miami dictates the fact that the fastest cars will mostly cruise through <laughs> using the DRS. I don't see a lot of options apart from closing together uh, the field. Uh, 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 to, to actually really spice up the racing. But I don't know what you think, Sean. I think my, well, my uh, harebrained idea, which Formula One would never go for because it would be completely off-brand, is to, if on these sprint weekends, 
why don't we remove the fuel flow limit on Saturday and then let them go hell for leather, um, as much power as you want. And so then you're saying, okay, it's a sprint weekend. This is as fast as the cars will go in a race situation because it's a sprint and not a marathon. But the jeopardy involved there is how much long-term reliability are you willing to sacrifice to get those couple of extra positions here and there? Um, if you give the teams enough rope to hang themselves, you get some fantastic uh, long-term consequences. Imagine, you know, if early, earlier in the season, Max Verstappen had used a bit of extra power to get a couple of extra points in that sprint, and then he ends up with the power unit failing on him with five laps to go when he's leading the Grand Prix itself because he sacrificed that reliability. Um, that, to me, would add a, a fantastic uh, point of jeopardy um, which it otherwise isn't there, because right now it's just a shortened version of a Grand Prix. You know, there, there you'd introduce something that's genuinely different, uh, uh, you know, would make a reason to come and see it on a Saturday and think, wow, okay, we're kind of going into the unknown here. We're not quite sure if we should be doing this with our power units. I certainly think a drastic open... I mean, in, in the sprint race in, in Baku, we saw cars and drivers in Park Ferme from Friday onwards. You know, so w there's a couple of things there. Firstly, it becomes very difficult for the teams to, to get the maximum performance out of the cars. Secondly, you set an order, and then the audience who are watching every single session through the weekend then know the pace of the cars that they've seen in qualifying is not really going to change throughout the rest of the weekend. And there's no unpredictability to that. I do think, and I do agree, that drastically opening up the Park Ferme, even beyond what we might expect on a normal race weekend, would add something to the sprint. Um, I think you might find yourself in Sandbag City a little bit there, Sean, based around... I suspect you're correct. I suspect you're correct. But it'd be nice to give them the thought, plant the idea in their head, because that's when any any I think any anything you can do to introduce the possibility of human error is to be is to be welcomed. Anything that you can be simulated to the point of being sterile. That's you know that's when we get races like we had in Miami where there was no yellows and you know no retirements and everything. But if we could add a little bit of madness to it, um, that's when you might. That's I think that's where it will get spiced up because I, I don't necessarily think we need you know a hundred thousand overtakes a race for it to be interesting. If people can see human beings, you know, making the decisions and make, you know, making mistakes and everything, that's what makes it really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put you both on the spot here. Um, seeing as we, uh, we, we dragged out um, whether, uh, whether it, it should have been uh, gone, we, whether we utilize room 101. Alex, Sean, should sprint races be thrown in the bin? Short answers. Alex, go ahead. No. I like sprint races. I think we should I think we should keep going with them. I I find it fantastic that every audience every audience throughout a Grand Prix weekend sees a result forming session uh, and I think that people who have bothered to come and sit beside the racetrack deserve that on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Sean well, for me, I mean, I'm a purist, so I've got one part of me that says this is stupid. Why are we doing this? We, you know, practice is perfectly fine. But then there's the reality part, and that is that, you know, we live in a society now where we have artificial intelligence, machine learning. We could simulate a million things. Um, do we need three practice sessions to, to tweak stuff that could be simulated a hundred million times 
uh, at the factory? You know, are we really just wasting our time? And if that is the case, well, we've got to replace that on-track time with something that incentivizes the drivers to actually go on the track. Because if you just, you know, if there's nothing in it for them, they'll just stay in the garage and save mileage. Um, so there is something to be said for the sprint weekends. I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the perfect weekend format, but I do at least welcome the idea of tweaking it and trying to come up with something that will work. We're getting there. We've at least got away from this ridiculous pole position that's not a pole position thing from last year. And trust me, I did die on that hill. Um, but now, we're, now we've managed to get that in the bin. We're moving towards something that I think will work better in the long term. So let, it's, it's a work in progress. We're not quite there yet, but let's not, uh, let's not uh, jump the gun and get rid of it just yet. You can trust me, the drivers do not care what you call it. I've driven in qualifying, I've driven in hyperpole, I've driven in superpole, I've driven in uberpole, and and all the time I just tried to do the fastest lap until the checker came out, mate. So the drive, <laughs> don't don't worry about what the driver's opinion is. <laughs> uh, we're just going to throw a load of stuff in the bin. You know, Formula One, give us a job. We'll sort it out for you. Um, let's leave it there for now. Thank you both. Thank you, Alex. We love your driving insights and look forward to more of that in the next episode. Now the chequered flag is almost in sight, but we're not done yet. Oh no, it's time for our Aramco Focus, the area of the show where we shine a light on a subject you might not know too much about. If you were listening to our last episode, you'll have heard Pierre-Olivier Calandini, director of Aramco's Fuel Research Centre, giving you the background on Aramco's introduction of sustainable fuels into F2 and F3 and its roadmap for 100% sustainable synthetic fuels in Formula One. This week, we're continuing our journey into the future of fuels as we chat to Didier Perrin, the technical director of the F2 and F3 championships. Hi, my name is Didier Perrin and I'm the technical director for F2 and F3 championships. This year, we are using the uh, sustainable Aramco fuel, which is a, a, a very interesting challenge and uh, that's the main difference compared to last year. We are, I don't want to say the guinea pig, but we, we, we are the first one to do something which is fantastic. We are doing it, we are starting the project today and we have a, a fantastic uh, uh, plan to go not only fully sustainable, but also fully sustainable and fully synthetic and this is today only the first step of that plan. In two years time, the next step will be to run with some synthetic fuel, sustainable synthetic fuel. Everyone will have to be sustainable, no choice. So we are proud to be uh, one of the first ones to do that. And we are proud to do that at that level. If we are able to run with sustainable fuel, Anyone can do it. So we are showing the way, and that's what we like. So that was Didier Perrin, technical director of the F2 and F3 championships. And we'll have the final part in our trio of future fuels interviews in the next episode. That's about it for today's show, but we'll be back with you again after Imola. In the meantime, be sure to like, follow or subscribe to the Race F1 Tech Show podcast feed to ensure you never miss an episode of that podcast or this one.
Alex, anything fun planned for the next couple of weeks? Oh, plenty more skidding about in some old cars. I'm also going to be going to a very special non-F1 race, but will it be behind the wheel or behind the mic? Let's see. Oh, the intrigue. And Sean, what about you? Well, after dashing from Azerbaijan to Miami in the past week, I intend to get some 100% sustainable sleep for the next few days. <laughs> Very good. Thank you both as ever for joining me. Until next time, it's goodbye from Sean. Bye. Goodbye from Alex. Bye-bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. The Athletic.